0: I'm James Esposito and this is New Books in History. Welcome and thanks for joining us. I just finished talking to Eric Lindstrom about his new book, Ruling Minds, Psychology in the British Empire. This book will be released by Harvard University Press in 2016. Lindstrom's book shows how the field of psychology often cast doubt or even subverted patterns of colonial discourse. Contrary to much of the historiography on the subject, Scientists of mental health often questioned the established conception of normality and inferiority, as well as notions of civilization and barbarity in the British Empire. British psychologists expected to find affirmation of racial hierarchy through diagnostic testing of colonized peoples in Africa and the South Pacific, rather encountered the same abilities all over the world. Discovery of the universal unconscious through dream studies eroded belief in the superior European intellect and showed that hidden desires and hidden fears were the same in Britain as they were in distant outposts of the empire. Aptitude testing further questioned the innate superiority of Europeans over their Indian and African counterparts. Lindstrom shows how psychology was mobilized to win hearts and minds in Britain's counterinsurgency campaigns of the 1950s and 1960s. Administrators borrowed techniques from psychology to know and control national liberation movements from Kenya to Northern Ireland, actively reshaping thought and feeling while casting doubt on the psychological maturity of the colonized. I hope you have a chance to pick up rolling minds, especially if you're interested in the role of social science in the Imperial Project. Winström's book serves as a valuable contribution to the field and asks us to rethink the role of scientists in the service of empire. It was a pleasure to talk to Eric, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, I'm James Esposito, and this is New Books in History. Today I'm talking to Eric Lindstrom about his new book, Ruling Minds, Psychology in the British Empire. Eric, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming to the show. Um, First, before we start um, talking about the book, could we talk about your background and how you got into uh, British imperial history, especially in the, in the 20th century?
1: Sure. Um, I guess I have to start with uh, my experience uh, as an undergraduate at Princeton, uh, where I graduated in 2006, uh, I certainly didn't have any intention of specializing in British history when I uh, went to Princeton initially, um, and I, I sort of fell into it. Uh, Linda Colley had had just arrived shortly before I arrived as a student. Um, she's a magnificent lecturer, uh, and that certainly set me on the path of, of British history, uh, at least in a broad sense. Uh, and then when I went to Harvard uh, in, let's see, 2007, I guess it must have been, uh, one of uh, Linda Colley's students, Maya Jasanoff, uh, had just arrived. So that's another sort of case of fortuitous timing. Uh, and so I, I fell under her influence, I guess you could say. Um, why the 20th century, though? I, I don't have a great answer. Uh, well, let me back up. Why imperial? Um, I, I guess uh, it, it's hard to write British history now and, and not think about the empire, a, a few people do, obviously. Uh, but there are uh, there are various uh, pressures and, and reasons for doing that. And of course, you know, one of the great contributions, both of Kali and of Maya Jasanoff and many others, is to break down that boundary between metropole and, and empire, right? And so I certainly took on board early that that insight that you can't think about one without thinking about the other. And I hope I've um, furthered that. Uh, in my own work. Um, In terms of the 20th century, I I don't know that I did set out to be a a 20th century guy. I think it's more the case that I stumbled on this particular topic of, of psychology uh, in the empire for various reasons and uh, went from there.
0: Okay. Okay. I, I I did uh, appreciate in your book uh, the, the sort of weight of new imperial history is, 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 Right on top of your book, but it does such a great job of showing how you know, uh Empire and and Metropole are in this constant sort of exchange, this uh, intellectual exchange. And you focus particularly on uh, psychology and sort of um, metrics and sort of trying to understand how uh, the Empire thinks and how the Empire feels and how to maybe mold those feelings. Uh, in a way to sort of maintain empire and decline. Right.
1: Yeah, that's that's very perceptive, actually. Um, uh, and of course, I, in terms of where this project came from, I, I can't say I knew that's what I wanted to write about at the outset, as you can imagine. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, going back to the intellectual biography side of things, if I could, um, I, I would go back again to my undergraduate days at Princeton um, and and would point not just to the influence of Linda Collie but of course, so many great, uh, European uh, cultural intellectual historians there, who I um, crossed paths with at various times, uh, Tony Grafton, uh, Robert Darton. And then beyond that, the sort of the great books which were still hanging out there, um, uh, Natalie Zeman Davis and Carl Shorsky. And I bring up Shorsky because, uh, whether in terms of his book, Fantasy F Vienna, or Peter Gay's books, uh, or Jan Goldstein's books, so many of the great works of European cultural and intellectual history, are about or influenced by psychology and psychoanalysis. And those were the books I really discovered and loved as an undergraduate. So, although I didn't set out to combine an interest in British imperial history with an interest in the history of psychology, um, those two tracks were always sort of somewhere in the background, and so I I was very glad to be able to put them together in what I hope is uh, a coherent way with this project.
0: Okay, okay. Well, also... uh, um, kind of going from that, what, why psychology in, in particular? Did, did you think that you wanted to sort of bring the sciences more concretely into new imperial history, or was it a a something that you discovered um, when you were doing your undergraduate education? Do you have an interest in
1: it? Yeah, so, so the interest was always there, and I, I think at some level it was something I wanted to see if I could pull off, because no one had really written about it before, at least not as a trans-imperial phenomenon, right? So, yeah. Uh, If you look at my footnotes, clearly people have written about different aspects of this, right? There are great studies of uh, mental testing uh, and experimental psychology uh, in South Africa, for instance, uh, in Australia. Um, Quite a bit has actually been written about psychiatry, so the asylum, ideas of insanity, the sort of irrational native mind, uh, you know, in in scare quotes. Um, So so a bit had been done on this in in different ways, uh, but I think... Uh, a sort of big-picture, transimperial imperial um, approach had not yet been taken. So there was an opening uh, there. Um, but beyond that, yeah, there's always an element of kind of fortuitous archival discoveries. So one of the things I discovered, um, and I think it would have been my second year uh, of graduate work, uh, mucking around uh, in the LSE archives uh, in London, uh, were the records of the Colonial Social Science Research Council. CSSRC, uh, which came into being right after the Second World War and and lasted up until the 1960s. So, a relatively brief period after the war. Um, This is a body which uh, historians of anthropology have written about a bit. Um, This was a way of channeling government funds from the British state out to the empire to do various kinds of social science research, particularly anthropological field work, linguistic work, work that might be of some use. Uh, to the empire, it was thought. One of the things I discovered doing my work um, was that it wasn't just anthropology that had been funded by the CSSRC. There were all these sort of scattered projects in West Africa and the West Indies uh, and elsewhere in Malaya, for instance, uh, on psychology. So how do we adapt mental tests to these different places and cultures? Um, Does visual perception work differently with different ethnic groups in Malaya? That was one of the projects that was funded uh, in the late 40s. Um, so that discovery of these uh, very scattered, strange, to my mind, uh, projects of research in psychology is what got me thinking, well, first of all, maybe I could write about psychology in the empire. Maybe there's, there's something there. Um, but also beyond that, uh, it really did raise an intellectual question for me. Why did anyone in the colonial office think that psychology would be useful to the business of running an empire? And so that was one of the big questions I wanted to unravel uh, going forward.
0: Okay. Yeah. In in your book, just as a whole, there seems to be this tension between uh, psychology as a a useful imperial tool to sort of understand the colonized and sort of manipulate and sort of manage. But also uh, you show, and this is is actually one of the things that makes your book unique in my mind, is that you show that the, the people, the psychologists and psychiatrists that are doing this research, aren't always on board with the imperial project it often, you know, it's it's either doubting at sort of the best of times or sort of subversive and almost as critical as they could be while being, you know, funded by the state. So it's this interesting tension there.
1: Yeah, that's that's really perceptive, and I'm, gl- I'm glad you picked up on that because, of course, so much has been written about uh science in the empire or this idea of colonial knowledge more generally, right? Um, and this is a big part of the new imperial history, in fact. Uh, getting beyond... Uh, the official mind getting beyond this kind of dry diplomatic military history, which is what imperial history was for so long. Um, I think that move beyond uh, that kind of imperial history is something we owe to people like uh, Edward Said uh, and Bernard Cohn, people who said, we need to look at artists and scientists and anthropologists and others, not just as people who happened to be in the empire, but as people who were somehow helping to constitute imperial power, right? And of course, that's now a really uh, familiar idea. The historians of Empire, and I think it's, it's a powerful idea, and it's an idea that makes a lot of sense in a lot of ways. Uh, that said, I do think one of the things um, I want to get across, one of the points I want to get across in my own work, is that experts, at least the experts I look at in psychology, as you said, often had quite um, skeptical views about the imperial project, um, often held quite subversive views about race, empire, um, hierarchies of race and empire. Um, and so that, to me, is what makes an interesting story, right? There is a tension there between officials who want to use mental tests, to use theories of the unconscious mind, um, to operationalize them, uh, to use them for various uh, imperial and imperialist ends. Uh, and yet, at the same time, have to reckon with the fact that these experts who are producing the tools that they want to use are not necessarily on board with that political agenda. Yes,
0: Exactly. exactly. Um, So, yeah, I think this is a good time to to get into the text and and we can talk about the first chapter. Um, The laboratory in the field inventing imperial psychology. Um, You talk a little bit about uh, sort of turn of the century attempts of Cambridge intellectuals going to uh, the South Pacific and and sort of doing diagnostic tests um, in this sort of distant, sort of almost uh, uncontacted uh, colonial uh, region terrain. So could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So this is
1: a chapter which is mostly about uh, the Cambridge University expedition to the Torres Strait uh, between uh, Queensland and Australia uh, and uh, New Guinea. Uh, I think I said 1898, at the end of the 19th.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so this has long been something that historians of, of anthropology have written about as kind of a foundational moment uh, when uh, really the idea of fieldwork begins to emerge as a central part of, of British anthropology. And many of the figures associated with this uh, moment, uh, Alfred Haddon, W.H.R. Rivers, uh, Charles Seligman, and others, go on to become sort of founding figures of the field of anthropology uh, in Britain, uh, along with uh, Charles Myers, who becomes kind of a founding figure of the field of psychology. So particularly in Britain, I think people uh, are aware of the Torres Strait expedition as an important moment. And um, in the, the foundation of these new disciplines uh, at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century. Um, I'm interested in uh, that in a way, I suppose. Uh, and one of the points I want to make here is that it's not just psychologists or people who call themselves psychologists who are interested in using techniques of psychology. It was anthropologists. And then in later chapters, it's missionaries and it's factory owners and school teachers and it's all kinds of people. So disciplinary boundaries are uh, uncertain. And I think that's, that's one of the points I want to get across uh, from the outset. Uh, but the other point I want to make here is that uh, these researchers uh, sponsored by uh, Cambridge University, many of them at the beginning of their careers are in rather unstable uh, professional situations uh, when they go out to do this research. Um, they had evolutionary assumptions sort of built into the work that they were planning to do, right? Uh, they were influenced by Herbert Spencer. Uh, by Darwinist ideas of racial hierarchy. Uh, And so one of the things, the sort of chief empirical result they expected to find by doing these laboratory tests uh, with the people of the Taurus Straits, these islanders who were seen as remote, primitive people, um, was that their powers of perception, their powers of hearing and vision, would be more acute than you would ordinarily find in Britain or in Europe because their higher mental functions, their higher intellectual functions were less developed. So this goes back to Spencer and Darwin and the kind of energetic model of the mind, in which was a fixed quantity of energy. And if you're spending less on lofty thoughts, then you have more left over for, uh, seeing things at great distances or hearing sounds at great distances. So that was the assumption they expected to be able, uh, to uh, validate with this, this laboratory work, uh, which they brought into the field. Uh, and it turned out that it didn't work. Um, in fact, uh, <laughs> Power Powers of perception were not any greater among the Torres Strait Islanders than they were at home. And alongside that sort of experimental result, I think uh, at least some of the participants in this expedition, and I talk particularly about W.H.R. Rivers uh, and uh, Charles Myers, uh, were actually quite influenced by the experience of doing fieldwork, by developing a kind of personal rapport with these imperial subjects, Uh, The kind of experiments they were doing required a lot of close contact and back and forth. Um, And as they lived in this community, they lived in a few different communities, but one in particular uh, for weeks at a time, and got to know the individuals in these communities, I think many of their preconceptions about race, about the primitive mind, about the idea that these communities were somehow monolithic, that there was no individual personality, that there was no real intelligence, um, I think all of those assumptions began to erode as well. So this is really a story about the unexpected consequences of experimental uh, research, um, which is really what psychology meant at this stage, right? It's a laboratory discipline coming out of um, the work of Wilhelm Wundt in Leipzig, um, and really taking the techniques of physiology and trying to apply them to the inner workings of the mind. Uh, That's the the intellectual background here. But in any case, uh, it is a story about unexpected consequences. Um, and the fact that the evolutionary assumptions, the racial and imperialist assumptions with which these researchers had set out uh, really didn't survive the experience of experimental testing and and field work once they were there.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. This this chapter seems to make the sort of demarcation between 18th and 19th century travel literature where, you know, Europeans are going to the South Pacific or India or, or wherever and saying, oh, well, you know everyone acts, acts like this, and they're sort of in these unchanging categories, these Orientalist categories, and and it's interesting that uh, in this case science disproves it almost immediately. Okay. And, and science, but also sort of human contact and, and empathy and these sort of um, more subtle uh, human interactions that that they discover um, in the South Pacific.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. Um, so, you know, a big part of the idea of evolutionary anthropology and, um, for instance, Herbert Spencer's work um, is really built on uh, armchair scholarship, as it was called at the time, right? So it's uh, guys like Spencer who would sit in their studies in London and read the reports of travelers. They would collate them, and you can still see these massive volumes of uh, the work that Spencer did in collating and categorizing all of this data that would come in. Um, and then allow them to arrange all of this data in a very sort of neat evolutionary hierarchy. I do think, not necessarily that uh, the Torres Strait or experimental work or field work instantly disproved all of that, but I think it complicated it in all kinds of ways, and clearly uh, a range of reactions was possible after the expedition, right? So William McDougall, uh, who goes on to be a psychologist uh, in Oxford and then at the end of his career uh, at Harvard, Uh, in uh, the United States, uh, really maintains his views as a scientific racist throughout his career. He finds ways to reconcile the results in the Torres Strait with his own preconceptions. Um, But someone like Myers really, I think, does rethink um, his views. uh, Rivers even more so, and of course Rivers famously will go on, along with Seligman and Myers actually and a few others, to work with uh, shell-shocked soldiers uh, during the First World War. We'll talk more about that too, I imagine. Uh, But after the war, Rivers will run for Parliament on an anti-colonial Labour Party platform, Uh, and he seems, one of the points he seems to be making is that uh, our ideas of British superiority are misplaced, uh, that we are irrational in all kinds of ways, and that the the Natives, the so-called Native mind, is actually a lot more rational than we give it credit for. Um, And that's a line which uh, Meyer certainly embraces to a a less polemical degree, maybe, than, than Rivers, but I do think this process of rethinking hierarchies um, and particularly the idea of a boundary, a fixed boundary between primitive and civilized minds, I think that does begin in the Torres Strait um, right at the turn
0: of the century. Uh, yeah, in in uh, chapter two you talk about dreams. Uh, it's actually called a dream dictionary for the world, and and you discuss the the idea of interpreting dreams. Uh, first sort of in Europe uh, in the wake of the first world war, uh, like you said, with Rivers and his work with uh, shock patients. But uh, it begins to sort of expand these places in the empire where it sort of slowly, these uh, British uh, psychologists sort of realize that, that the sort of colonized has this unconscious mind that seemed to be only accessible to, you know, Europeans. Uh, Yeah, it's very interesting. If you could talk a little bit about that. And the First World War, too. I mean, these things are sort of uh, completely connected. You know, the irrationality of the First World War, but also with this sort of obsession with the unconscious mind.
1: Yeah, yeah, they are connected um, because, I mean, one of the things I'm trying to do here, of course, is to trace these Taurus great figures as they continue to build their careers and and go on to be influential uh, intellectuals, university professors, and advisors to colonial officials for the rest of their Their careers, Um, and so right, Rivers, Myers, Seeligman, and MacDougall actually all of them participants in the Torres Strait expedition uh, go on to work with uh, shell-shocked British soldiers during the First World War, and so I think in different ways they're all also pioneers of psychoanalytic and Freudian culture in Britain itself. Um, So there's a connection again between um, you know ideas of cultural difference and the empire, uh, and I think. Uh, maybe what we would describe as modernist ideas of, of irrationality in the unconscious mind and so forth. So one of the things going on in Chapter 2, uh, and I don't pretend that this is entirely a novel observation, but I think it's striking that it's uh, something that's happening with the same guys who are involved in so much colonial research, uh, is that as uh, knowledge of uh, Freud's theories and later Jung's theories sort of disseminate uh, in, in Britain, and again this happens particularly during the First World War, there's increasingly recognition that uh, the Western or British mind is not entirely rational, right? That minds are fractured, that they're subject and susceptible to all kinds of irrational pressures and forces. So that's already, I think, disrupting or unsettling hierarchies uh, in all kinds of ways. And I talk a bit about uh, the controversy kicked up by the theories of Lucien Levy Brühl, who of course is not British, but is widely read uh, in Britain. Uh, and his idea that there's a distinctive primitive mentality which is uniquely irrational. It's all kinds of tension in Britain, but it's mostly negative attention because, uh, as I think happens increasingly after the First World War, people are saying, hey, wait a minute, we can be awfully irrational too. Um, But the other piece of this, as you said, uh, James, is that the same guys who are looking at British minds and unconscious minds and, and noting the irrationality there during the First World War, are going to continue to be interested in colonized minds, the minds of imperial subjects after the war, minds and other cultures and other races. Um, and so the character I really trace here again is Charles Whitman, uh who by this time is a fairly well-established anthropologist at the LSE, at the London School of Economics, um, but calls on a network of informants all around the world to collect dreams. Uh, he asks his friends uh, in India, in Nigeria, in the Solomon Islands, in the Sudan. Uh, and in quite a few other places, to interview the indigenous people and ask them about their dreams. He sends them very detailed guidelines for doing this. Uh, and they then send these kind of dream narratives back to him. Uh, and he notices quite a few different things, but one of the things he notices is that uh, Freud's theories of, of how to interpret dreams seem to work just as well for people in Africa or the Solomon Islands as they do in Britain. Um, and so once again, I think you have a blurring of boundaries, um, an unsettling of hierarchies, a scrambling of hierarchies, uh, which is being brought about by these new theories, these new techniques in psychology.
0: Okay. Yeah, no, uh, it was, that was an excellent chapter. I, I learned a lot from that. Um, it, it, it was interesting, too, that, that, that these things, not, not only is there a, a sort of uh, public interest in the interpretation of dreams, that, which you identify as sort of lasting forever, you know, in European <laughs> right. society, people are really obsessed with dreams, but it, it's interesting that the sort of same sorts of dreams uh, are sort of familiar in, you know, a African context as well as European context. You have this uh, part where you talk about uh, losing teeth is is, is a common uh, dream kind of trope where people are sort of afraid of fam- familial loss. Um,
1: you can talk about that a little. Sure. A little yeah. Bit no, that's, that's a great uh, example because uh, one of the things that happens. Uh, at the end of C. work, after he's done a lot of dream collection from these other sort of exotic locales of empire, uh so he tries to run the same experiment at home and really do a more systematic comparison of the way people dream in Britain and the way people dream in the empire and in other parts of the world. And as you say, he finds many of the same um, motifs, symbols, images, um, and very importantly, not just the same symbols, but people attach the same interpretations to those symbols. So you mentioned Uh, Dreaming about losing a tooth is seen as uh, a bad omen in Britain, as it is uh, in uh, more primitive cultures. Uh, Dreams of flying tend to have a more positive, uh, he privately says, uh, most likely an erotic association, both in Britain uh, and in uh, other parts uh, of the world. Um, But the other thing he notices when he begins to ask people about their dreams in Britain is that they have the same superstitious belief about the power of dreams to foretell the future. So once again... Uh, Seligman, uh, through psychology is led to say, hey, uh, Levy Brühl talks about uh, these irrational superstitious beliefs as if they belong uh, only in really one sort of corner, this sort of primitive culture corner of the world. In fact, this is something which is all around us uh, in Britain today, even in this very modern society. So when he's corresponding with people who are telling them his dreams, and they're saying to him, uh, this is how I knew my son was about to die, or this is how I know uh, knew my fiance was about to break up with me because I had this dream. He's saying, no, no, th- there's another explanation for this. There's a rational explanation for this. We can talk about Jung's theories of uh, how you might have uh, picked up on subtle emotional cues and then that gets incorporated into your dreams, and, and people sort of reject this. Uh, and, of course, there is a very vibrant culture of occultism uh, in Britain. Sure, Aleister Crowley. Uh, in Britain. Uh, so, once again, uh, although Seligman himself is in some ways still wedded to these categories of primitive and civilized, he's certainly wedded to certain racial hierarchies still. Uh, psychology is making it more difficult to hold on to those categories rather than uh, making it easier. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Um, if we can just sort of get to uh, the sort of middle part of the book where you talk about diagnostic mm-hmm. testing. And and this is really fascinating uh, it, in Chapter 3, it's, it's called Meritocracy or the Master Race, the Origins of Mental Testing in the British Empire. And and it, it's interesting because it has such a a multi, sort of a multiplicity of, of geographical areas. So, it, it, ostensibly, it's about uh, missionaries in, in uh, India, but also sort of uh, the Indian civil service. Mm-hmm. But it, in another sense, it's about the United States and and the US has been really interested in, in diagnostic t- testing for soldiers during the First World War and then again in the Second World War. We could talk about this, chapter. That would be great. Sure,
1: yeah. Um, so, you know, I guess one of the first things to say here is that, you know, to the extent this book is trying to push back against, uh, you know, some of our received uh, wisdom about colonial knowledge, right? The idea that science, and certainly when you think of mental testing, you think of Stephen Jay Gould, you think of ideas about race, racial inferiority. Um, to the extent I'm trying to push back against some of those assumptions, I think taking on the example of mental testing is an important part of that argument, right? So uh, in this chapter, I try to show that there were very different strands of thought within the empire about how to use mental tests and what they might tell us. Um, so on the one hand, I think, in particularly in the settler societies like Australia, like South Africa, uh, you do have what I would consider to be a, a familiar tradition of scientific racism tied up with mental testing. And so I, I talk uh, quite a bit about this Australian psychologist, Stanley Porteus, who was clearly deeply invested in the idea that you could use mental tests to document uh, the innate biological inferiority intellectually. Uh, first of the aborigines uh, in, in his uh, home country of Australia, but then uh, sort of export this to other parts of the empire as well and, and uh, use mental tests, in many cases the same mental tests, document the inferiority of the Kalahari Bushmen and other uh, sort of subaltern racial groups, right? So that idea is certainly part of imperial debates about mental testing between the wars. But... Um, the point I want to make though is that it's not the only uh school of thought about how to use mental tests, that there is a very different school of thought, which I think is particularly inflected by the missionary community. So I do talk a bit about the fact that mental testing, and particularly American style mental testing, the Stanford Binet test, which really is used for the first time on a wide scale with American troops during the First World War, as you said, um that test really comes to India as a result of American missionaries in the country. Uh, and their agenda is not to document the uh, sort of biological innate inferiority of Indian people. Uh, they're interested primarily in using mental tests as an educational tool uh, to try to decide uh, which uh, Indian uh, eight-year-old boy is most likely to benefit from a scholarship if they only have one scholarship to give. Um, or how to differentiate instruction, how to decide... Uh, which uh, students are ready to go on to the next level versus those uh, who aren't. Um, So, in in any case, I think as the 1920s move into the 1930s and mental testing becomes more widespread, uh, you see a clash between these two ways of thinking about mental tests. On the one hand, you have Porteus and his allies, again particularly in settler societies, uh, who want to use mental tests to advance an agenda of scientific racism, even of eugenicism, uh, versus others, and increasingly it's not just missionaries, it's also British officials, Uh, it's British anthropologists and psychologists uh, who are associated with the prestigious institutions back home, like the LSE, like Oxford and Cambridge, uh, who take a very different view, who say that it's extremely dangerous and wrongheaded and probably not justified to conclude on the basis of mental tests that some races or cultures are inferior to others, uh, in fact, that if there are differences that are being measured between one culture and another, it's because of environmental factors like poverty, like malnutrition, like lack of education, rather than any innate biological uh, difference. And then really the only reason to use mental tests at all uh, is for practical purposes of educational selection or job training uh, or hiring or that kind of thing. In other words, to differentiate individuals' within a given population, rather than to compare one population with another and say that one is inferior and one is superior. Uh, And as I try to say in this chapter, I think that's the vision, the sort of anti-racist, relativist vision in many ways, which wins out. This is the vision which the colonial office throws its weight behind, uh, and this is the vision which really triumphs, I think, at least on on an imperial, on a trans-imperial level, right? Uh, This is the formal policy that British officials adopt. Uh, and this is the model they try to encourage throughout
0: the empire. Yeah, it, it, it's it's fascinating to to read how much well, today we, we take for granted that there are these sort of uh, supposedly you know uh, uh, impartial diagnostic testing for uh, let's say educational advancement or or you know drug uh, uh, training as you said. It, it it was interesting to see that especially in the Raj there's this sort of Parallelism, where there's this sort of old school Raj that's all about nepotism and pretty inefficient, and you know, um, you know, very much sort of regressive and 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 sort of slow to change. But there's also this sort of um, productivist aspect to it that makes it say, well, okay, if this is going to survive, if the empire is going to survive, we need to make this as productive and merit, you know have some sort of meritocracy here. And it's interesting that they use these diagnostic tools to, to sort of push the Raj to sort of modernize it in even slightly.
1: Yeah, that's a great observation. So, I mean, obviously we know, uh, you know, from the British context, from all kinds of contexts that, you know, racism and eugenicism on the one hand and modernization or ideas of modernity on the other can often go together. Uh, I think in this case though, they, they don't really go together. It's, uh, precisely the same people who are warning about the dangers and even the wrongness of using mental tests to document racial differences and to entrench racial hierarchies. It's precisely the same people who are saying at the same time, uh, as you said, uh, let's use these new technologies to shore up a kind of creaky, inefficient system. Uh, in other words, the Raj and other colonies, as this language uh, disseminates, uh the Raj is in danger of failing because we're not identifying the most talented the most innately talented Indian subjects. We're not getting education a limited amount of education we're not getting a limited number of government jobs into the right hands uh We're using outdated ideas about um privileged castes for instance uh rather than looking at a more sort of individualistic meritocratic uh way of looking at things um and so that is an important point going forward that uh, even if uh, many figures and many of the most influential figures in the empire are very skeptical about using mental tests uh, for purposes of uh, ranking races, comparing races, uh, they do believe in using mental tests and they're very enthusiastic about using mental tests uh, for reasons of efficiency, as you said, whether it's economic efficiency or the efficiency of the state, um, a sort of uh, forward-looking reformist modernizing agenda, as you said.
0: Sure. Uh, yeah, and it goes into the next next chapter where you we talk about uh, aptitude testing in sort of barracks life, but it, it seems to also sort of originate a little bit with England itself and, and and the United States in the on the factory floor and trying to fit the um, the as you say the uh, the, the square pegs and, and the round holes in their respective spots. You know, finding the right man for the job. You know. Um, it, you know, we have to identify who's going to be the best driver, the best, you know, machinist or, or you know, what have you. Uh, could you just talk about the connection between sort of uh, efficiency and capitalism and these sort of diagnostic tests, um, you know, in this sort of context? Sure.
1: No, I mean, that's a great uh, point. So uh, I guess uh, you're right. One of uh, the starting points for this chapter is the observation that industrial psychology, which, of course, has all kinds of unpleasant Codian implications, probably for very good reasons, um, actually also has a kind of uh, relativist uh, bent to it. And what I mean by that is that
0: uh,
1: occupational psychology or industrial psychology is suspicious of any absolute ranking of abilities, right? And so this is yet another way in which I think psychological knowledge might undermine or complicate or scramble hierarchies. Uh, unlike the idea of mental age or IQ coming out of uh, you know, Stanford, Binet, the, the tests I talk more about uh, in Chapter 3, Uh the, the tests I talk about in Chapter 4 are occupational aptitude tests. And so the person who is a very good manager might not be a very good driver. Uh, and the person who is a very good uh, machinist might not be a very good radio operator or whatever it might be. The point being that there are no absolute rankings of ability. You have to look at every individual in this very specific context. Um... And so, what I find in this chapter is that the moment when psychology goes from a kind of isolated project pursued by different, uh, but more or less isolated figures within the imperial context, the moment when it's really embraced by the imperial bureaucracy and sort of circulates around the empire and is adopted in a really systematic way is the Second World War. Um, and it's the challenge at that point of raising millions of Indian and African soldiers uh, and trying to decide who's fit to be an officer versus an infantryman, and then within the infantry, uh, what kind of tasks people should be assigned uh, to do, precisely the kinds of tasks that you just mentioned. And so that does require, uh, I think, the mobilization of expert knowledge in new ways. And so psychologists and psychiatrists who were involved in devising these tests um, and in implementing these tests really have more influence, I think, uh, in the halls of imperial power than ever before. Um, I talked at the beginning of the interview about the Colonial Social Science Research Council, this new vehicle for delivering funds to psychological research and other kinds of research after the war. I think the roots of that and of other kinds of investment in psychological research after the war really lie in the Second World War and the need
0: to manage manpower in some kind of
1: psychologically sophisticated
0: way. It it, it is um, uh, interesting also in Chapter 4 where you talk about um, sort of resistance to these things, sort of, again, the, the old school, sort of, you know, I would, I would say, I mean, arguably less efficient and, and often cooler and, and sort of, I don't know, just, just less scientific, uh, managerial techniques that are in the British Empire that are competitors to expert knowledge. Uh, in, spe- specifically, like, um, I'm thinking about where you talk about, uh, Jen Smuts talking, uh, he was invited to uh, go to a conference of uh, imperial psychologists and he refused to go because he thought that would imply that they would have to take uh, um, African officers into the South African army and he wouldn't have that at all. Um, could, you, could you just talk about these sort of this power play between old empire and this sort of new, more technocratic empire, yeah. or technocratic tools of empire.
1: Yeah, it's. I mean, it's quite interesting. So, um, you know, many of the, the champions of using these new tests, um, and I should say, you know, there are the occupational sort of skills tests, there are also more personality-based tests, particularly for who's going to become an officer and who's not. So there are all kinds of different theories, there are all kinds of different tests, um, which uh, the Imperial military in particular is trying to use in this period. Um, But there is a very definite rhetoric built into them, at least at the beginning, uh, at least when these tests are first used in India, which is that human nature is the same everywhere in the world, right? Uh, That um, the leadership qualities which would allow an Indian soldier to be an officer are the same as would apply to a British soldier who might want to become uh, an officer. Um, So there's a very strong claim, actually, that we don't need to worry about racial differences or cultural differences because human nature is the same and because the principles of personality, for instance, are the same everywhere. Um, That attracts resistance, actually, from two different quarters, and I think this is quite interesting. On the one hand, yes, you absolutely have these Raj traditionalists, the the Colonel Blimp types, who say, um, you know, I I know how to work with my natives, I know my natives, and frankly, my powers of intuition, my ability to, to size up an Indian just by looking at him, and probably also thinking about uh, what ethnic group he belongs to and what caste he belongs to and, and so on. Um, it's all I need to know. I don't need expert knowledge. I can rely on this combination of stereotyping and intuition and, and whatever else. Uh, on the other hand, there are those, including some Indian psychologists, who were involved in this testing apparatus who say, look, these are experts who have just parachuted in from Britain who are using these theories of Western psychology uh, and trying to apply them here Without even trying to norm them with an Indian population, right? Without even trying to establish first if these tests really do work with Indians as opposed to British people. Um, so, because the theories behind these tests are so universalistic, um, that can attract criticism or resistance both from sort of old school retrograde racists on the one hand and from the kind of cultural relativist uh, Indian nationalists on the other hand, right? So, the, the politics of this are very complicated. Um, uh, universalism, I think, can be both racist and anti-racist, and relativism, what we would now call relativism, can be both racist and anti-racist, and that's a kind of irony and attention I try to draw in a few different points
0: uh, in the book. Yeah, yeah, so much of your book is uh, trying to establish uh, metrics and a universalist metrics, and, and the problems that when you have an empire that's based primarily on race, right. trying to find some universalist metric is, is incredibly difficult and it, uh, sort of exposes the sort of the, you know the 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 errors in this sort of way of thinking, the ideology which the British Empire was based upon. Um, and, and I guess this is a good way to segue into the last section, uh, part three on, on expertise mm-hmm. and. And in particular, the truth about hearts and minds and, and counterinsurgency, uh, especially in Malaya, but you talk a little bit about the Mau Mau as well. Um, how, how are these psycho- psychological tools and metrics and perceptions used to mobilize uh, um, forces against counterinsurgency and, and against uh, third world nationalism in particular?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, this is a really important, I think, um, hinge of the argument in many ways. Uh, it begins in Chapter 4, I suppose. Um, but Here I'm trying to really pinpoint the moment when this form of knowledge and the various forms of psychological expertise, which had been so subversive in many ways and raised all kinds of questions and challenged hierarchies for so long, is now suddenly being implemented and embraced by imperial officials for very authoritarian and often, I think, uh, we can say racist purposes, right? So, So how does this happen? as one of uh, the big questions uh, here, but I think um, I was struck actually doing research by how central psychology was, both the sort of language and rhetoric of irrationality versus rationality, the idea that nationalism is itself a kind of irrational, even potentially fascistic disease of the mind, and I think the experience of World War II is a big part of what makes many British intellectuals in this period think that nationalism is itself um, a pathological force in many ways. Um, but aside from the language and the rhetoric, yes, I think a real forms of psychological theory and psychological measurement uh, are sort of used um, in new programs. First of all, development programs for combating nationalism, as you said. So ideas of group psychology. Um, how can British officials portray themselves not as kind of authoritarian figures who will uh, draw opposition from these new movements sort of position themselves in a decentered way just as um, agents of change, which is actually coming from the indigenous population itself, right? Um, and to a really surprising degree, I think, in this period, the training, the formal training for colonial officials draws on theories of group dynamics, uh, Kurt Levine's theories of group dynamics, uh, in particular other sort of Neo-Freudian, uh, and behaviorist psychology coming out of the American Academy in this period. So there's an important transatlantic component here. Uh, but increasingly, to be a colonial official in the post-war period uh, is seen to require real psychological expertise, right? Ability to manage groups and to divert passions into politically safe directions rather than politically problematic uh, directions. Uh, and this happens, too, uh, in the practice of counterinsurgency. So I do spend some time talking about... Um, the fact that captured insurgents, Chinese insurgents in Malaya in the late 40s and early 50s were interviewed by psychologists, uh, both American and British psychologists, uh, often about their childhoods and about their reasons for joining the insurgency. They were subjected to a battery of questionnaires and intelligence tests and other forms of psychological knowledge, which was then in turn used uh, to develop propaganda, um, use particular kinds of images of the family in, in the leaflets that were dropped in the jungle, for instance. Um, So one of the points I guess I'm trying to make there is that although uh, historians are now skeptical for all kinds of very good reasons about the rhetoric of hearts and minds, right? We know that counterinsurgency was quite violent and coercive. It wasn't just about persuasion and propaganda by any stretch. Uh, Despite that, I think we have to keep in mind that uh, the British and British officials and military officers in particular were still quite uh, optimistic about the possibilities of psychology and sort of unleashing... Uh, new potentials for the imperial state, and containing nationalism, uh, and as I said, diverting these potentially subversive uh, emotional currents uh, into safer channels.
0: Yeah, it was was fascinating, especially if if we can, you touched on it, and I I wanted to touch on this as well, the experience with the Second World War and seeing nationalism as some sort of pathological, you know, twisted neuroses that, you know, their experience with Nazi Germany and and uh, uh, Japan and, and Italy had showed them, oh no, nationalism! We we have to stamp this out. This is this as this is as dangerous as as communism. And at this time, these 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 things are very hard to disentangle as well. Um, it, yeah, I mean, uh, it's it was fascinating how much uh, fear of the war sort of permeated into the empire, places that that you wouldn't normally think would uh, have this sort of uh, transaction or flow of, of knowledge.
1: Yeah, I mean, of course, it's hard to say on some level how opportunistic this language is, right, trying to, to portray nationalism as a kind of uh, anti-colonial nationalism, as a kind of pathological force. And, of course, at the same time, there's a very long tradition going back at least to the 1920s and probably quite a bit earlier of portraying anti-colonial movements as as mad, right, uh, and irrational on some level. So, th- so there's a long history there, which I, I touch on with a few uh, different points uh, in the book. Uh, that said, of course, we sort of take it as a commonplace now, we think about the Frankfurt School and the idea that fascism and the authoritarian personality can be, you know, measured as, as if it were a mental illness, right? We know we now know that that really is um, a big part of the postwar period and postwar thought, um, that idea that fascism has psychological roots and roots in the unconscious mind. Um, I do think there are sort of connections that haven't been adequately explored yet between that European context and the reaction, in many cases, of left-leaning British intellectuals who you would think would be fairly sympathetic to anti-colonial movements, and in fact aren't. They see it as um, barbaric, irrational, mad, particularly Mao Mao, but I think also um, also the movements
0: in Malaya and Cyprus and, and elsewhere. Okay. Um, well, you know, let's, let's get to the, the last chapter and then we can talk about your conclusions and and the end of the book. Your last chapter is great because it it, it sort of links the careers of of the psychiatrists or psychologists at the end of empire with the sort of uh, end of empire and the rise of sort of the non-governmental organization and sort of American uh, not so much displacement of the British uh, globally but sort of uh, using international organizations through the UN to sort of uh, have the same sort of Approach towards uh, maintaining power and sort of uh, keeping, you know, everything relatively peaceful and trying to subvert or at least slow down uh, third world nationalism in some way.
1: Yeah, so I guess here,
0: you know, building on the work of um, a few recent uh, scholars,
1: definitely Mark Mazauer and, and Susan Peterson um, and Matthew Hodges and others who have pointed to the importance of imperial interests and imperial mentalities uh, in the foundation of new international organizations. So certainly uh, we know that story with the League, uh, thanks to Susan Peterson, especially after the First World War, um, but also the, the UN after the Second World War, and that's what this chapter is really about, particularly uh, more specialized uh, agencies. Um, so I talk about the WHO and UNESCO at, at some length, uh, and also, as you mentioned, non-governmental organizations like the World Federation for Mental Health. Um, WFMH, which actually worked quite closely with WHO uh, and UNESCO. So there's a bit of an alphabet soup uh, in this period, but um, I, I did want to make the point um, precisely that you've just made, which is that um, the theories, the experiments, the techniques, which have sort of been built up through years and years of experimentation, um, and often were funded by the colonial state, don't simply end suddenly in the 1950s or the 1960s, that uh, many of the people involved in this work uh, did have long careers afterwards in places like uh, the World Health Organization uh, and UNESCO, and that they carried many assumptions with them um, about the pathology of African minds, particularly, or Asian minds, um, and most especially the idea that those pathologies were transmitted in the family. Um uh, So I spend a lot of time here talking about theories of child-rearing. Um, and why was it that uh, WHO experts, for instance, were so preoccupied with the way that mothers breastfed their children in Africa uh, and in Asia uh, at this moment when big development programs uh, were coming into being really for the first time. Um, and I think a lot of it goes back uh, to this, this history of empire, right? Um, questions going back to the 20s and 30s about unconscious African minds. Uh, is there an Oedipus complex in Africa? Are African personalities uh, somehow different and if so, why? Um, I think these assumptions continue to sort of live on and and probably even beyond the 1960s. although that's where I stopped. So, you know, I I think I've made the point in a few uh, different stages of the book that, you know, difference uh, is being sort of reinscribed from the biological to the cultural. And and that's a familiar story in many ways. Um, You really see it, I think, uh, in a place like the WHO in the 1950s. And, And of course the irony here, and this is sort of driving toward the conclusion is that, uh, psychology in the imperial context or in the international context uh, looks a lot less subversive and a lot less uh, radical in the 1950s than it did, for instance, at the turn of the century, uh, right around 1900. So anyway, that's just a, a brief glimpse, I guess, of, of where, where we're going next at the conclusion.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you could just expand on that, we we can really get to the end of the book and, and just to see, you know, um, how how does the, the post-colonial how does this affect a postcolonial mind? It, do you think that that the expertise sort of brought up in the nineteen forties, fifties, and sixties really sort of lives on, or do you, or do you think it it sort of becomes somewhat less obvious, but just as coercive in some ways? Yeah, I mean
1: that's a, it's a difficult uh, question. Uh, so I mean, my own feeling is that you know the reason uh, the experts I write about seem like less subversive and in many ways more authoritarian and maybe even more racist figures, um, by the standards of their time in the fifties as opposed to, you know, fifty years earlier. Um is really for a few reasons. I mean, one is that the state itself is changing. So empire, I think, is, is taking on a more benevolent face in the nineteen fifties. The idea of wealth the idea of welfare development, um, the idea that empire is not simply about um hierarchy and exploitation and it's about you know providing uh, clinics and schools and medical care and that kind of thing, which of course is self a justification for perpetuating empire. Um, but in any case, I think that does open up new possibilities for experts to work with the state and feel good about it. And I think that's an important change. Uh, and of course, the foundation of these new international organizations uh, is part of that picture as well. Um, the other difference, though, I think is, is an important one, which is that, um, whereas at the time of the Torres Straits, for instance, in, into the 1920s and 1930s, I think perhaps the most important external influence on British psychology was anthropology. And so there's a lot of kind of, not necessarily relativist, but certainly culturally sensitive thinking, which I think is part of uh, British psychology as a result. It's part of, uh, for instance, A lot of the skepticism about mental testing in the 1930s and racial differences in mental testing. Um, I think by the 50s and 60s that has really faded, and and the major external influence on British psychology is psychiatry, Um, particularly a kind of American-style normality versus pathology model of psychiatry, which again is sort of influenced by the experience of the Second World War and the Frankfurt School and the idea that yes, some cultures are sick and some cultures are healthy, and we should feel okay about intervening in cultures to make them more healthy. Um, That, I think, is a somewhat new idea for the kinds of experts I'm looking at, and and that's why,
0: uh, in many ways,
1: these are less liberal, less radical figures uh, at the end of my book than they were at the beginning.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, The sort of radicals become the establishment at the end, and and the establishment identifies uh, new pathologies or or different pathologies in this new uh, intellectual climate. well, um, Eric, what's next? What, 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 are you, what are you working on? What's your, what's your new project?
1: Well, uh, very early stages. Um, but I'm very interested uh, in writing more about the post-war counterinsurgencies, uh, which, of course, uh, have been a hot topic uh, of late. Um, but I'm particularly interested in the question of what ordinary people in Britain, uh, and not just ordinary people, but all people, knew about the violence of counterinsurgencies. So how widespread was knowledge of torture in places like Kenya? During the Mao Mao counterinsurgency, um, and how was that knowledge disseminated to a wider wider public, if at all? Um, how was it justified, uh, particularly so soon after the Second World War, um, which we we like to think promoted a new awareness of human rights um, and a revulsion with torture, among other things? Um, so, really looking at cultures of counterinsurgency in the nineteen fifties, and what I found so far. Um, is that knowledge of torture was actually quite widespread, um, that journalists in places like Kenya and Cyprus knew quite a lot about what was going on, um, but didn't always report it to a wider public. So I think uh, the question I'm particularly interested uh, in exploring now um, is the idea of epistemic filters. So why was some knowledge um, not considered confirmed enough or confirmable enough to share uh, with a wider public? Um, And then alongside that, and I think this will be part of the same picture, why was it that some of the fullest and frankest portrayals of torture and counterinsurgency came not from journalists and not from human rights activists and not from the legal system, uh, but rather from uh, filmmakers and uh, fictional writers and others? Um, Why was it that fiction and art seemed to have a greater capacity uh, for transmitting awareness of uh, these imperial crimes uh, than
0: based Okay. Eric, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me.